0: From home, I'm Mariah Humiston, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, a special on the lives and legacies of the Syracuse Eight. It's Tuesday, May 12th, 2020.
1: I guess to set the scene here, at this point in time, this is 1969. Ben Schwalzweller is already the winningest coach in Syracuse football program history. He had just coached Ernie Davis and he had just coached Jim Brown, two of the best players in Syracuse athletics history. And at this point in time, Ben Schwalzwalder calls Greg Allen into his office in Manly Fieldhouse.
2: Okay. And uh, so I'm thinking that, hey, you know, he probably wants to uh, find out you know, if I've been working out, am I in shape, and ready no to play. So uh, hold on, go to Secretary shows me into his office. I sit down to Boston's desk, and uh, he says to me, what's this I hear about you and black
1: shit? He's a man in the field house. He finds out that Greg Allen, one of his black players, has been involved with a movement. He wasn't even super involved. He was just at pretty much one meeting. They were trying to get a black studies program started at Syracuse University. So this is completely... Unrelated to anything, you know, on the football field.
2: So he says, "Well, I tell you, you got a decision to make. You want to be black, or do you want to be a football player?" He said, uh, "Coach, um, I don't see how one would interfere with the other, but I'm going to be black all my life." be a football player for a short period of time as well. you got some thinking
1: to do This kind of interaction is kind of at the crux of a lot of the issues in athlete activism with the Syracuse 8 and throughout the history of athlete activism where marginalized athletes, whether they are black or female or LGBTQ, they're asked over and over again, you know, are you an athlete or are you a human? And this is obviously unfair, but it's a problem because they face backlash for being political, for believing in things, whereas white athletes can, you know, say whatever they want. And it's this ridiculous double standard here. And one of the biggest parts of Syracuse 8's legacy is that they stood up for what they believed in and they set an example for that for athletes for years to come. Hi, I'm Danny Emmerman. I was the sports editor of the Daily Orange last year. Now I'm a senior staff writer.
0: So you mentioned Greg Allen, who was a part of the Syracuse Eight. Can you tell me who they are and what they did?
1: It was actually nine football players in the spring of 1970. They were misnamed the Syracuse Eight by the media at the time because one of the players had already been medically disqualified from the team. Wow, that was Ron Womack, but the Syracuse Eight, it was a group of nine football players who decided to boycott spring practice in 1970 because a number of their demands to improve the football program and make it more equal weren't being met by Schwartzwalder and the athletic department as a whole. We can go into those demands later, but essentially they were, they were protesting systemic racism in the athletic department.
0: And now, what made you want to cover this, and how did you approach it?
1: So that's kind of a funny question. I actually discovered their story in one of my sport management classes. They were part of the unit on athlete activism and the history of it. So when the teacher kind of said it in class, the whole class didn't really have much of a reaction to, oh, this happened here, this happened here 50 years ago, you know. Nobody really knew what had happened. And even I hadn't really heard of it before then. And I thought that was weird because it's truly a fascinating story. And it's a super important one. And it's one, you know, that needs to be told. So from there, I researched, you know, who these people are. And I reached out to Dana Harrell first because he's based in Boston, where I'm from. So he was the first person I contacted. And I interviewed him. Here's the first interview I did. I interviewed him in August of 2019. So I interviewed all six of the living Syracuse 8 members over the span of about six months. I talked to each of them for about an hour, hour and a half, learned their stories, what they've been up to now. I think Dana, who I talked to first, he told me, you know, after the series ran, he said he was really happy with how I was able to capture... Who they were 50 years ago and, you know, how they've evolved to today. I was really happy with that feedback, although I'm not sure I did a great job of it. I'm happy that he thought so. But it's truly amazing that they've become such great people and such substantial lives after everything they went through at Syracuse.
0: So what were these athletes thinking about Syracuse before they came in as black men in a time of widespread racism? And what actually happened?
1: so they pretty much all came into syracuse from different backgrounds you know some of them experienced more racism segregation than others depending on where they're from but they entered syracuse thinking that this was going to be kind of like a haven for for black athletes again they were following in the footsteps of jim brown and ernie davis two black football stars also floyd little uh, Larry Zonka, numerous other amazing, amazing black athletes at Syracuse. So they saw that, and they were kind of excited to be the next in line for that kind of generation. And they saw Syracuse, like I said, as a, as a haven. A school that is noted
2: for running backs, and especially, uh, it seemed like, um, uh, very conducive for uh, African-American black Athletes, you know, to succeed at Syracuse. Um, of course, I had the examples of Jim Brown, Ernie Davis. The that old,
1: definitely uh, was Mack. not what they had experienced. The first day, Greg Allen stepped on campus. Actually, it wasn't even. It was even before he stepped on campus because Schwarzwalder picked him up from the airport. So, in the first
2: um, as I arrived, Coach met me and uh, say, hey, let's grab your stuff and you know, let's head, head to campus. So we get in the car, and um, as we're leaving, uh, Hancock says to me, hey Greg, uh, we're really glad that you chose Syracuse. Um, you know, we think that you're gonna have a great career here. Um, but um, one thing uh, I wanna tell you is that uh, while you're here, you know, we we don't want you dating
1: any white girls. And that was a rule he had for all of the black players, not just Greg. So, that story kind of it, it, it set the tone for them at Syracuse and it was kind of a wake-up call that this wasn't actually going to be this this haven.
0: And so, what were they risking by striking?
1: They Pretty much were risking a chance to play football professionally. That might have been the biggest one. They risked losing their scholarships, which they didn't. And that's an important point because eight of the nine of them graduated from Syracuse. So they didn't lose their scholarships, though they did risk that. They also risked obvious backlash from, from students, from coaches, boosters, their teammates. They risked not being able to play college football anymore, which... For the most part, none of them rejoined the team. We keep coming back to Allen, but Allen rejoined the team in the spring of 71, but only played a couple, I think two games because he was still experiencing continued systemic racism, so he quit. And he was pretty much the only player that rejoined the team at all. They risked their athletic primes to stand up for what they believed in.
0: They had several demands. Can you walk me through what they were demanding and why?
1: Absolutely. One of their demands, we'll start here. So they wanted equal academic treatment as their white, their white teammates. They didn't get the same access to tutors as their white teammates. A few of their other demands were also for everyone. They were intended to help all athletes. And all of the athletes were kind of pushed away from their major and the subjects that they wanted to study because it interfered with practice or they're considered too rigorous. Um, so for instance, one player wanted to be a biology major, but the labs interfered with some practice times. So instead, their academic advisors were coaches, which is kind of a sham, but essentially he picked the sham classes that they wanted him to pick. They filled it, He filled it out in pencil. And then after the advisor approved his course list, he erased it all and took the biology classes that he wanted to. Another demand they had was to integrate the coaching staff, and that was really important for them because they wanted to be able to go to someone with complaints that they could actually trust on on the football team. And they had demanded that. That was the first demand, and they Schwartzwalder went a whole year of ignoring that completely. And then after they decided to boycott, he actually did hire an assistant coach. His name was Carlman Jones. And then... Today, obviously, Syracuse's head football coach is Dino Babers, who's black, and we can get into that later. Another demand was improved medical care for all of the players. The athletic trainer at the time was actually a practicing gynecologist, and he was Schwarzwalders' just good friend. He essentially got the job because he was his friend. And there are just awful stories about him, about Dr. Pilo. He would often operate, it's unclear whether it was accidental or on purpose, but he would operate on the the healthy body part of injured players. So, for instance, he operated on the right wrist when someone had hurt their left wrist. He performed medical malpractice on Ron Womack. It was likely at the direction of Schwarzwalder, but Womack came into school with a pre-existing condition and... Dr. Pilo essentially, he upped his medication so much that Womack wasn't able to live comfortably and he wasn't able to perform. And that's why he was medically, declared medically ineligible, which in my opinion is one of the most sinister, disgusting parts of this whole story. And the final demand was playing time based on merit, not race. And this was because at the time they had prevalent, it was called a quota system, so it was kind of unspoken, but every team, including Syracuse, pretty much could only play a couple black players on the field at once, and they couldn't play specific positions that were deemed quote-unquote thinking positions like quarterback, center, middle linebacker. And on the depth chart, these black players would consistently get jumped over by less experienced, less skilled white players, just because of these quota systems and because of, frankly, racism. And they wanted that to end. That was their final demand.
0: So can you tell me about the reactions to the strike? I know that there were a lot of different perspectives. So first, can we start with, uh, tell me about how the teammates reacted?
1: Yeah, so at the time, their white teammates They were definitely against the boycott. They thought that their black teammates were being selfish, that they were letting the team down. And this was likely at the direction of the coaching staff, following orders. At one point, the white teammates signed a petition. 68 of them signed a petition to not allow the Syracuse 8 back on the team. But there's one notable thing about this. Essentially, the leader, I think he was a captain at the time, he was a white guy named Joe Ehrman. And he was very outspoken at the time about the boycott and he opposed it at the time. And now, since then, he's, you know, matured a lot, obviously through the years, but he's written a whole book about his coaching style. And in it, he kind of says that he's completely changed his mind on the Syracuse Eight and he totally supports them now. He's expressed deep, deep remorse about how he acted at the time. And he's totally, you know, f- flipped the script on that, which is interesting. And I think, obviously, his actions and the actions of the coaching staff and the other white teammates at the time are inexcusable. But it's good that at least he's changed his mind now with, you know, through the years as he's learned more about what they stood for, how important their boycott was, and and who these people actually were. They weren't just boycotting for no reason. They actually risked and sacrificed things for for stuff they believed in.
0: And can you tell me about the reactions from their fans?
1: So from the fans, they were probably most likely similar to the white teammates in that they were frustrated that they were some of the best players on the team. They weren't playing anymore. Uh, and the team... In 1970, when they didn't have all the black players, they were they were pretty terrible. They wrote a lot of hate mail to the Syracuse 8. Clarence McGill, one of the Syracuse 8 members, sent me a few excerpts of hate mail that he's actually saved over the years. And it's pretty vulgar, just horrible stuff. Some fans called the Syracuse 8 lazy. They called them the N-word. They called them quitters. A lot of unspeakable things that are just plain horrible.
0: And can you now tell me about the reaction from the NCAA?
1: We touched on it a little bit earlier, but pretty much the biggest reason they were able to maintain their scholarships, their academic scholarships, was because of the NCAA. And even back then, the NCAA had rules where even if you're kicked off the team, which Syracuse 8 was you get to maintain your your athletic scholarship. And other than that, I don't think the NCAA interfered much. It was kind of an issue just at Syracuse. But that them being able to maintain their scholarships is a massive, massive part of the story.
0: Can you tell me where they are today?
1: Eight of the nine have graduated, and there's six of the nine still still alive. And almost all of them have become incredible people, um, super substantial people. A few of them have become teachers. Dana Harrell, he got his law degree, and he became a real estate lawyer. And he worked for the state of Massachusetts for many, many years. Ron Womack's a teacher. I believe Greg Allen's a teacher. The three Syracuse 8 members who have passed away. Richard Bowles, Dwayne Walker, and John Godbolt, whose story is probably one of the tr- the most tragic of them all. From what the Syracuse 8 told me, and from what I've read, the boycott kind of took its toll the hardest on John Godbolt. He kind of went into somewhat of a mental health crisis at the time of the boycott, when he wasn't allowed to play. And, uh, He's the only one who didn't graduate from Syracuse and he lost touch with everyone and he went missing essentially in Florida. They never really regained touch with him and eventually they found out in I think 2012 that he had passed away. And what they read about him was unfortunate. Apparently he didn't even know where he was from at the time that he passed away. Part of that must have been the the toll of the boycott, but he clearly had some mental health issues there but otherwise all of the syracuse a members became incredibly substantial significant members of society even with all that syracuse took away from them
0: how are they feeling about their relationships to activism and athletes as a whole
1: so i'd say that's one thing that they're most proud of they set the stage for athlete activism, and they set a really good example for how to protest peacefully, how to, you know, speak eloquently and informatively on important subjects of social issues. And it's something that they weren't the first example of athlete activism, but they're definitely an important stop on kind of the timeline of it throughout the years. Just to bring it to today, they see lebron james as someone who has really taken the mantle in athlete activism and has used his platform to inform people and to speak out on really important issues over the weekend lebron sent out a tweet about the ahmed arbery shooting in georgia and he said We're hunted every day, we being black people. And that's an example of LeBron using his platform to inform. And that question of identity of whether you can be black or you can be an athlete, LeBron James is, you know, a great example of someone who clearly bucks that that trend and defies societal expectations for the better in that. He doesn't, you know, just shut up and dribble like some people want athletes to do, but he speaks on important social issues that are important to him. And he's not just an athlete. He's way more than that. And that's super important for the Syracuse 8.
0: And as you mentioned earlier, Syracuse now has Dino Babers as the football coach. How are they feeling about their part in integrating the Syracuse coaching space?
1: The Syracuse 8 sees Dino Babers as kind of the logical conclusion to their boycott in many ways. They definitely see him as part of their story in that in 1970, they demanded an integrated coaching staff. And now in 2020, they finally see one, see a, a totally integrated coaching staff. Dino Babers is the first black head coach in Syracuse football history. Right now, I believe he's one of 13 active head coaches in in FBS college football. They don't have as great of a relationship with Dino as they'd hoped. They've reached out to him a few times, and he's obviously respectful and friendly, but they don't talk to him all the time. They haven't really spoken to the team as they have in the past with some some coaches in the past have organized events where they get to speak to the team and tell them the story. Dino hasn't done that, which is kind of disappointing to them. Dino didn't talk to me for my series, which is totally fine. He didn't want to be interviewed for whatever reason. And they were definitely upset by that. They emailed me a formal statement about how they're proud, then they think Dino's part of their legacy, and they're disappointed that he didn't want to share. Dino also had kind of a standing meeting set up with a few of the Syracuse 8 members just to talk about, you know, their protests, talk about the team. It was supposed to be last winter, but it actually got canceled by a crazy snowstorm, and that meeting hasn't been rescheduled yet, but... The Syracuse Eight is supposed to be back on campus in the fall for the coming back together reunion, which is gonna commemorate their fif- the fiftieth anniversary of their boycott. And they they've been trying to schedule a meeting with Dino. So they said they they're hoping to meet with him then in the fall.
0: And as many of our listeners know, Syracuse University experienced a series of racist incidents this year, and the Not Again SU movement formed in response. How were they thinking about that movement and what's going on today?
1: I called one of them at the very beginning of all of the hate crimes in in November. I think there had been four or five hate crimes or hate and bias related incidents in three or four days, and I called one of the Syracuse A members to ask him, you know, what he thought about everything. And he was really emotional when I talked to him and. He was kind of getting choked up as I asked him questions about how would he compare the climate today to 50 years ago.
2: It was, it was a social issue. Now you have, and, and, and what happens is, the problem is hate, hate ain't dead. Yeah. Okay? It ain't dead. Okay? it's just raises ugly head again. And what you have to have is, you gotta have right-minded people understand that you know what we can't keep going through these things because
1: many of them thought you know they saw so many parallels in not again SU's boycott both in November and in January at Kraus Hines they saw so many parallels between that movement and their boycott 50 years ago which was it saddened them a lot because they wanted, they didn't want anyone to have to go through what they went through again. And 50 years later, I know one quote was, hate ain't dead, Um, but it's not. (laughs) And that's really, really sad. There's still systemic racism today. And the institutional racism that Not Again SU is protesting, the Syracuse A considers it similar to what they protested against in 1970, and they considered it kind of a flashback.
0: And what are the Syracuse Eight hoping for in the future?
1: So one thing the Syracuse Eight and nanagan SU are both hoping for in the future is that they add a Syracuse Eight and other notable boycotts into the Sam 100 curriculum at Syracuse. But in general, that kind of feeds into the, into the general idea that Syracuse 8 just wants more people to hear their story and they want more people to learn from them. because like we just talked about, with everything with so many problems still going on, they want people to learn from their boycott, so hopefully you know problems start to subsist um, in society. Clarence McGill emailed me after the series ran and he said, if Syracuse had embraced our history more and earlier, by telling and teaching the story of the boycott the, then maybe the current climate on campus would, uh, would look a little bit different and whether or not he's right is kind of impossible to know but in my opinion of course it couldn't hurt to, to teach their story in the classroom and learn from, from everything they went through and from the issues that they helped solve.
0: And finally, can you tell me, how are they feeling about Syracuse University today?
1: Their thoughts on Syracuse today is kind of, in my opinion, one of the most remarkable parts of their story, in that each and every one of them who I talked to, they each unanimously pretty much had the same reaction, and they said, you know, I love Syracuse. They had to
2: do what was right, to try to make things better. But no, man, Syracuse, we love Syracuse. I mean, great education, great athletics. I mean, great exposure to, you know, people from all over would support it, still behind it, Uh, watch it whenever they're playing uh, sports.
1: And I thought that was Uh, kind of incredible because if they dealt with all of the things they dealt with in 1970 and they had many of their dreams stripped away from them by Syracuse it's pretty unbelievable that they have this unconditional love for for the Syracuse University a lot of them you know wear Syracuse gear all the time they root for the teams sent their kids and grandkids to Syracuse it's pretty remarkable that they they all love Syracuse so much even even after all they went through
0: Read Danny Emmerman's series on the Syracuse 8 on the Daily Oranges website. A special thank you to Danny Emmerman for his fantastic reporting on the sound. Thanks to our executive producer, Lizzie Kama, and our producers, Lucas Sirio and JJ Tanaka. Thanks to JC Cola for all the editing this week. And as always, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and go ahead and tell your friends to do the same. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next fall. Have a great summer.